Hello, my beautiful and bearded buddies. This is Von Warren, and um, I thought I would <clears throat> tell the story of my addiction um, because I know I briefly mentioned it a couple times in previous episodes, but it's important to get the full story. So here we go. Um, I never really had a problem with any other substances other than meth. I mean, granted, I did some things drinking that were not the best and uh but i was very easily and without like problems able to be like Oop, nope let's not drink um but it wasn't until meth that i really learned what addiction was my parents it runs in the family um they have their own struggles but i was kind of cocky because i had drank i had smoked pot so and it didn't like you know render me uh render me useless so I had the mentality of, and I quote, I don't understand how you can use drugs or drink till you're homeless. Don't you think you'd have enough common sense to stop? It, it's gross for me to even say that now because it's not that simple if you are, if you have a, an addiction problem, but that's how like naive I was. Um, now, fast forward. I got all through nursing school without, you know, any problems. Once I got my RN, um, there was this individual who, um, he messaged me from Manhunt and he lived in the cities. And here's how naive I am. I didn't even bother to like look him up on Google, nothing. If I would have, I would have seen that he was a very big time drug dealer that had gotten caught and, you know, is into some trouble and he's not a... Currently in his life, he was not the best man he could be. I'm not saying he's a bad man. Um, but now, mind you, in order for him to find me, because I live three and a half hours away, he would have had to have searched for me, like searched from, you know, X amount of distance out of the cities. Come to find out, he did do that because he had gone through the boys in Minneapolis at the time. So he was trying to get, you know, new blood because he got off on what he was about to do to me. So he messages me and very attractive man um, saying that like, oh, you're so sweet. You're so smart. Oh, we should go on a date. And of course I fell for it like hook, line and sinker. Um, it's funny because the person is a very like, had I known then what I know now, um, he's a very big name in the gay meth world. Um and he's very much a player. He's very much like doesn't want to date. So like, it's funny looking back at just the, how, like, I don't even know how to say it. Just how much I fell for it, you know? So pride festival is coming up. And, um, at the time I was not dating my first boyfriend. We were on the outs, but he told me, he's like, don't go. I had this bad feeling. Don't go. And of course me being 22, and thinking I'm an adult and thinking I've got this under control and, you know, hold my beer and watch this kind of mentality. I was like, well, no, I'm going to go. I want to go to Pride Festival. I'm going to have a great time. It's going to be fun. So I get there and I pick him up and he starts taking me to the some seedy Motel 8 in a suburb. And that should have been another clue, but it wasn't because, again, I'm sheltered and naive. And we get to the hotel room. And that's when I experienced like meth and sex for the first time. And 
it's something I would never encourage anybody to like try because our brains know a certain level of dopamine by natural just living, right? So dopamine, for those of you who don't know, is the feel-good chemical that encourages behavior for procreation and survival. Like eating, you get dopamine surges when you eat. That's why eating is, is a feel-good thing. Love, sex, but those are like the top level of dopamine. That's the threshold that our brains can handle and know, right? So meth, because of what it is and what it does, the second it enters your bloodstream, it floods your brain with an unnatural amount of dopamine. That's where you get the invincibility feeling. That's where you get the sexiness feeling. That's where everything feels good, this euphoria. So just using meth alone opens a threshold, a chemical threshold in your brain that you can't undo. You can't go back and be like, oh, I don't know that level of dopamine. You can't undo that. You can't shut that door. So then when you have sex on meth, that further opens another door where your brain can't forget that level of dopamine. So we do our thing and he says, okay, um, well, I got a run to make. I'll be right back, man. Uh, just, you know, hang tight, dot, 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 dot. He never came back. So I'm 22. I've never been to the cities on my own. I am in a hotel that I, you know, I'm, I'm not in the, it's, I'm in a hotel, I'm high, I'm no idea what to do. Um, the next person I meet ends up being my, I mean, I guess he is my, was my boyfriend. I'm not guess, he, he, him and I did date. Um, and he, I'm very lucky that I met him because he was a person and a, and a dealer with a conscience. You know, every time I would go down a rung in the ladder that I said I wouldn't go down, he'd point it out. And he'd be like, hey, like, this is something I warned you about. This is something I warned you about. And while at the time those things didn't click, after a while they started to add up. And they started to, I started to open my eyes to like, oh shit, like something's happening. Um, so I hang out for the weekend. I go home. And of course I feel my first come down, which is, woo. It's an emotional free fall. How I explain it is when you're coming down off meth, it is literally like, like you and I right now are, there's a ground beneath our feet emotionally, right? So we have a ground to walk on. We feel stable. Um, when you come down off of meth, you literally, it feels like that ground just opens and you are free falling into anxiety, into darkness, into depression, into whatever, every, every negative emotion you can possibly like conjure up. That's what you're free falling into, right? So um, this person and I ended up cultivating a relationship. And, um, at the time I worked a 12 hour nursing job where, um, there was a, I would get a week off a month. So, but there was a week before that I'd have to work three 12 hour shifts, one day off three 12 hour shifts. But then I would get seven consecutive days off. Excuse me. So I would go to the cities on my seven days off. Right. And you know, things progressed in terms of like how I felt for him and like my addiction. And before I knew it, I was doing it close to every day. Um, I very, I was working night shift at this point. So I very quickly became a maintenance user because I would do it to wake up. I do it to stay awake. And it no longer was the, the, oh, I'm going to go on a bender and have fun. It was very much like a, this drug is in my system 24 hours a day. 
and mind you, I have ADHD, if you can't tell just by listening to me. Um, so another like key component of methamphetamine is depending on how your brain chemistry is made up, it reacts differently. So for me, it never was like the, oh my God, I'm like, you know, like just bouncing off the walls. It honed me in because I have ADHD. So I am what they call, or what I like to call a daywalker, where when I'm high, you can't tell. Um, especially if I'm being mindful and intentive with my, like, I need to just not be a spaz right now. Um, so, but eventually when you do it long-term, things start to change, whether it's your skin color, whether it's just how you act, whether it's you start to lose weight and I'm already a skinny person. So like, if I lose any weight, it's very like, Oh girl, what's wrong with you? Um, so I started to lose weight and I started to, you know, just things were changing. And, um, I, uh, I started to go down a very dark path now around Christmas. And of course, like you can't be faithful on this drug. And I was lying and saying that I was being faithful because again, I was at a point in my life where I thought lying was better than the truth. Well, my boyfriend found out and kicked me out on Christmas. Christmas, I don't blame him. Um, and I, I find myself in a hotel and lo and behold, um, the person who, I don't want to say got me into this mess because no one put a gun to my head and said, you have to use this. So when I say got me into this mess or whatever, it's very much lightly because I chose to do this. Um, and, you know, we were talking and, you know, one thing led to another and, you know, we did it. And um, I was leaving the next day and I was trying to get on PEP because I didn't know like what happened. Or I knew what would happen. I knew what happened. I just wanted to be like somewhat safe, even though I wasn't safe. Um, and, you know, I got on PEP and the drug they put me on, like, it was like a freight train ran through my brain. Like it when i took it the first time i didn't wake up for like 16 hours like people from my work because i live in a small town people from my work had to come to my apartment to like knock on my door and people were like arguing like i don't want to do it he's gonna be dead like i don't want to find him dead so like i was headed people could see where i was headed and but i wasn't dead i was just knocked out cold from this drug and every time i took it it was just like a freight train ran through my brain. I couldn't function. I could barely talk. Um, so I ended up getting that drug switched, whatever. Well, this brings us to about March where I lose my job. This is my first nursing job. Um, I'm thankful that they found a technicality to fire me on because they could have involved the board and I'm glad they didn't, but um, I get fired. And as I'm in my apartment trying to find another job, it hits me. I'm like, why the fuck am I trying to find another job? Like, I don't have any family here. I don't, nothing's holding me here. So I packed what fit in my Chevy, Chevy Malibu and I started driving to the cities. And I call my ex because we're broken up at this point. And I'm like, hey, I lost my job. Um, I'm coming to the cities. We're not, you know, together, but I need a place to stay. Now, my 22 year old self is very spicy, very like fighter, very much like don't tread on me, blah, 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 blah. And, um, so 
about two weeks pass of me staying with my ex and I get the boot. Again, I'm not angry at him. I am surprised he put up with that long. And he was having surgery and I was supposed to be responsible for him afterwards. And I wasn't because I was on meth. And I get kicked out, which means I'm homeless. So I am 22, homeless, in Minneapolis, nowhere to go. Um, I can't explain to you the feeling that that was like. When I remember sitting, it was in Aldi's parking lot, and I bought some ice cream bars. And it was in that moment where I'm like, holy fuck, I'm homeless. I'm fucking homeless. So this proceeds to be like about, you know, four or five months of me bopping around. And there are times where they were better than most. And there were times where it sucked, but there was one moment. It was a perfect storm. And um, it was no one could no one could have me over because I wasn't into like group sex. So like I wasn't about to like rain on that parade and like everywhere where I could go wasn't available. So I was outside in hot heat, no water, phone was dying. And I remember that comment I had where I was like, I can't understand how you can use drugs or drink till you're homeless. Don't you think you have enough common sense to stop? I was like, Oh God, like I, wow. So this experience humbled me and made me grow up so quickly. Um, there was a man um, who uh, did STD testing at the uh, red door and he was a good friend of my boyfriend or ex-boyfriend who, um, and my friend called in a favor. He's like, listen, uh, you need to save him because he's not, this is path is not his. He got, he got led down the wrong path. He's, you know, a good person. He has an education. He's an RN. Like you need to save him. So he calls me and of course he's like, you know, you're like, what's going on? And I told him like, I'm using meth. And he's like, how's that working for you? And I said, it's not. Um, so he's like, well, come into my office and you know, get tested, get on prep and all this. And I did. And his office kind of became a safe haven for when I needed like, you know, resources or whatever. Well, they end up getting me into treatment. Of course, it's a rule 25. And it's supposed to be like a 45 minute hour gig. My rule 25, because I was very brutally honest, was like an hour and a half. And he's like, wow, dude, like you have experienced some pain and some trauma. Um, I want to go to Pride and I'm very glad I went to Pride because and take this for what it's worth. Those of you who are in Minnesota, Pride can be a shit show. OK, treatment can be a shit show. But part of what you get out of it is what you put into it. So when I got this funding for 28 days, I knew that it was a chance to save my life. So I went in very focused. I did not have sex with anybody, which is a rare thing for people who go to Pride. I was very much like, I need to save myself. Well, that's when I got introduced to the concept of internalized homophobia. And I have been out since I was 12 years old. I have always, I have lived my life as a gay man more so. I mean, I was a kid and then I was a gay teen. Like, I don't remember a life not being gay. I always have known that I'm gay. I've always known I was different. I didn't get a word for it until 11 or 12. And then very soon I was pushed out of the closet and I kind of ran with it. So I thought that I was not 
susceptible to internalized homophobia. But nonetheless, in those critical years where you're building your self-esteem, you are susceptible to subliminal messages or straight up messages, and they get ingrained and ingrained in your subconscious. Also at 18 years old at the church camp I went to for three years, which I loved, I was exercised or they tried to exercise me my third year when I came out as gay. So there were very much messages from my family, um, not my mother or my brothers, but my father and other people, um, messages from my peers, messages from my religious uh, peers, which I held to a high standard that I was not good enough, that I was less than, that I was broken and that I was something to be fixed. So that it internalized and that took form in the sense of me trying to kill myself slowly. There's a book called The Velvet Rage, which is a great book. It talks about this tendency that gay men have to do this because of what society tells us. It's a great read. I really suggest it. Um, if you are gay or you know someone who's gay with addiction, it really just paints it in a light that makes sense. Um, so I go to treatment and um, I have a, you know, I, I get through it. That's how that, that, that can be a whole nother few episodes. Um, and I leave, oh, I'm set to leave treatment. And um, I was warned of the sober house loop. Um, that is where you go to um, treatment. You get into a sober house, you relapse, which they say is part of addiction. And then they kick you out and you're homeless and you start this loop. Because a lot of some sober houses, you can't work right away. I mean, like there's different, different sober houses have different rules. But I was warned of this loop and I saw the loop in treatment as friends who had been there a couple times. And I was like, I don't want to go to a sober house. Release me to the streets. And they're like, what? And I'm like, release me to the streets. Like, I'm going to be there anyway because I don't buy into 12 step for me. I've never had a problem with anything else. So I have a problem with someone coming into my life and telling me you can't use anything because you had a problem with meth. I'm a firm believer that addiction is a symptom of mental illness or trauma that's not being processed. You deal with the trauma, you deal with the mental illness, you deal with how you interact with chemicals. And that's essentially what I did because every relapse after this, because I, went, I mean, I went to talk therapy, I went on meds, every relapse after this was less and less severe because I changed how I interacted with drugs. I am able to lay my shit on the table and look at it. Um, so it took longer at first, but like for me, I don't buy into the whole, you are powerless for me. Now don't take this. If any of you are 12 step people stick with what you know, stick with what works for me, that didn't work for me. That made me feel inept. And I, like Dorothy, have had the power all along. It's my actions, my responsibility. And for me, when I say I don't have the power, I'm powerless, that takes away some sense of responsibility. And that's not how I better myself because I was the oldest. I very much like when I have a responsibility, I, I, I hold myself to a higher standard and my actions to a higher standard. So if you take that component away, I then hold myself up to a less of a, not as high of a standard. So they released me to the streets and um, I relapsed obviously. And my friend who did STD testing found out and he's, he calls me and he's like, I want you to live with me. 
And I'm like, what? No, I can't. I can't be a burden. I can't be a burden. He's like, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And um, I look around at the place that I was at and it was filled with used needles. It was a disaster. And he, and he could probably tell, he's like, I'll tell you one more time, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And I'm like, okay, pick me up. Let's go. Let's do this. From there, he showed me harm reduction and he showed me a way of life that I still live to this day. I went for, I think a year and a half, two years of complete sobriety, not complete sobriety, of sobriety from meth. And then I decided to dabble and, um, you know, I dabbled here and there and each dabble could be a podcast episode in and of itself. But the first major dabble, I met my best friend, Brett. And at the time we would be dated, he was supposed to be nothing more than just like a hookup. And he just never left. And I didn't want him to leave. And we ended up building this life together. And, you know, we obviously like crash and burn and whatever. But then we came back in each other's lives and tried it again. And of course we crashed and burned. And now we're, we're best friends. But like, this has been a journey for me, obviously. And, you know, as a journey, it's never over. But I currently am sober. There have been incidences that have led me and incidences on a physical level, incidences on a spiritual, I mean, a mental level, and incidences on a spiritual level that the spiritual one is very recent. I don't want anything to do with that. Um, I used to just be very laissez-faire. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, I'll use it here and there. No, no, no. Like, I want nothing to do with it. Um, because my, my very purpose for being on this planet about spreading love my very purpose for being a conduit of love and to raise vibrational frequencies is in the balance. And I don't want to fuck that up. So currently, as I make this little podcast, it is, I'm recording it on the 2nd of September. I'm not sure when it will be released, but as the 2nd of September, I am, let me look. I need a calendar. I'm clicking on it. Uh, please bear with me. There we go. God damn it. Too many clicks. Okay. I am five days, five days sober from meth. Um, I, like I said, this last little, like, and this last little blip was literally a day. It was, I got high and I got a message from someone that said, you need to stop using this drug because of a spiritual thing. And I was like, whoop, okay. Like that's where the haunted episode comes in. Um, so before that I had a week and I hate like going back to like zero days, you know, but I did get high one time and I was like, oh, like after getting that message, I'm like deuces. But so that's kind of my short synopsis of my addiction and where it's at and where I have been. I wanted to preface this because in my second episode, I talked about my journey into IV use. And I didn't want you guys to think that like I'm still using. 
So this was just more of like a quick clarification. I will obviously go into uh, details, but uh, later on, but I just figured I owe, I owe all my listeners that. So thank you for listening. And I'm very glad that I was able to have this conversation with you. I look forward to having more.